You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Claire Lehman. Claire is the editor of Quillette, and uh, she is also a columnist for The Australian. I don't know if you have any other roles. I mean, that's enough, <laughs> really. <Yeah>. That's it. <laughs> um, and uh, I am actually coming to you from the Colette offices in Sydney, which is uh, very exciting. I'm in Australia at the moment until the end of March. And I will just announce here, as I have everywhere else, I am in the market for an Australian wife or husband who can bring me here, get me a visa, and so that I never have to go home. We'd love to have, keep you here, Iona. <laughs> Thank you. I absolutely adore Sydney. So I think, let's see, where shall we start? Um, so you did a, um, a, a, you were doing a graduate degree in forensic psychology, um, which you gave up shortly before you started Quillette. Could you tell me more about A, why you, um, why you gave up that degree and also whether what you learned in that course has influenced your political views? Oh, that's an interesting question, Iona. Thanks for asking. So um, I don't often talk about why I left my master's degree. Um, a lot of people assume I left because uh, of uh, for political reasons. And I suppose it was a little bit, I suppose it was political, but not in the way that a lot of people think. Um, I did leave acrimoniously from the program I was doing because uh, it was a, a professional graduate degree and my university at the time was requiring uh, students to, to work unpaid hours in a clinic attached to the university. And um, the, what happened was I, I started working as an intern in a, in a clinic attached to the university that I was studying at. The clinic involved um, meeting with criminals uh, in, who were on parole or in some kind of, they were out in the community, but they needed to see a psychologist as part of their sentencing and so on. And uh, what I discovered was that at this clinic, students were working vast numbers of hours for free. They weren't be being paid and they were working hundreds of hours in excess than what was required for their course. And so this, um, this actually uh, became a political issue for me in that I thought that, you know, you, you actually have to get paid for the work that you do. So I made inquiries, I made various phone calls to various agencies that oversee university courses and training. And what I learned was that this was highly improper, what was going on at this clinic. And so I blew the whistle. What happened after I blew the whistle was that I was called into a meeting and told that I would never pass this course. And so I left acrimoniously. And it was the very next day after, le after quitting the course and leaving that I founded Quillette. And I founded Quillette actually in a pool of tears. <laughs> I, was, I was so upset. My whole career plans were derailed and I thought the only thing that's going to get me out of this depression is a hobby. I've got to have a project that I can focus on until I get a professional job. I ended up, did, I did end up finding a professional job. I worked at the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance and I was doing Quillette whilst I was working there. Um, and it, so Quillette didn't take off for like a year or 18 months and when I when I was first doing it, it was a very sort of small project, um, but that's how it started. Mm, thanks. 
Is there anything from um, forensic psychology that has really stayed with you or influenced you in your political um, or socio-political views? Well, I mean, uh, forensic psychology is part of psychology and there's lots of things that I've learned in psychology that have influenced my political views. I think the, 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 the most influential thing has been the role of individual differences and, and personality in life outcomes and also how and, and, and also having some training in statistics makes me aware of how social phenomena is generally more complicated than we often think and there are lots of uh, complex variables sort of intersecting with one another and, and part and part of why I launched Colette was because back in 2015 what I was reading in sort of mainstream publications was too simple so I was reading articles about feminism and issue uh, and uh, and op-eds about gender and arguments were just far too were the arguments that were being presented were far too simplistic and just having a basic training in quantitative methods made me aware that many of these issues are uh, wildly more complex than what many journalists were or op-ed writers were um, suggesting. Mm -hmm. in, in what ways more complex? Well, I'll, I'll say what I feel, which is that um, um, one big issue that's been kind of continually stymieing the, the left, and I think uh, sensible people on the left have moved away from this, is an absolute obsession with um, the malleability of, of human beings mm. um, and um, the importance of nurture and the more areas in which we have, the more areas we have investigated um, the impact of genetics every time the impact has been greater than we thought it would be. And that's become a a very unpopular view because people think it's biological determinism, uh, which which it's not. So I feel that that's, that's been one of the things that has kind of handicapped people, which is um, a very strong desire to find out that uh, nurture, socialization, and social structures are responsible for um, people's uh, difficulties or inability to flourish. Um, Partly because I can see why, because that's something that we have uh, greater control over. Mm. But when I hear people who are, um, I still hear a lot of academics on the left touting views that seem to me completely socially deterministic, and I feel it's just flat eartherism for the left. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's been a very long time since I. Uh, was not aware of how important genetics are when it comes to human behaviour and life outcomes. But I would say that it's, even though it's useful for us to be aware of uh, 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 behaviour genetics when thinking about broad trends and it's not terribly useful when, when considering the individual and when we consider individuals, we can't really, uh, we, I mean, if we think of ourselves, for example, it's, it's not very helpful for us to think, oh, I can do this and I can't do this because of my genetics. It's actually very useful to uh, look at what we can change in our environment and control in our own environment and focus on that. So I guess that um, there's different levels of analysis and I think perhaps one, one motivation or one reason why so many people on the left have rejected that area of research is because they, they intuitively understand that to actually um, make changes and uh, make progress you actually have to focus on what you can control and that is your environment. And so I can, uh, I can understand it on, on one level why there's been a hostility and rejection of that area of science, but at the same time, as you said, it's a form of science denialism. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you was about um, Quillette's political slant and mm-hmm. how that has developed. So um, uh, certainly at ARIO, I am, um, in, in general, I'm accepting or rejecting submissions on the basis of how well written they are. Um, and I'm certainly not rejecting any submissions because the author is uh, a conservative or right-wing, for example. But I've sort of chosen to allow Ario to drift in the direction it was naturally drifting, which was a, 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 a left-centrist, definitely centrist, but a, in a left-wing liberal direction. So I haven't, over the past um, year and a half since I've been in charge, I haven't published any articles that are Act, uh, explicitly promoting conservatism. Mm. Um, and that's not because I don't think there is, it's useful for those pieces to be published or that I don't want to read them. Um, I do, and I, uh, I'm very strongly opposed to intellectual and political monocultures. Um, but I think that there is, for Ario specifically, a kind of niche which is a more liberal, non-identity politics focused, um, universal humanist and strongly kind of pro-free speech left. Mm. So I have allowed it to have a a deliberate uh, political slant. Um, And I wonder whether um, you are also uh, giving Colette a political slant, if so, whether that has changed, um, and what your kind of selection criteria are in Reject, accepting or rejecting Quillette um, articles. Yeah, thanks, Ariana. We we consider ourselves to be a centrist publication, uh, but a lot of people would characterise us as being centre right, and we are often described as conservative. And in the Guardian, we've been described as right wing. <laughs> Um, but I, I don't I don't mind it if people describe us as centre right, and certainly in the columns that I write for the Australian, I lean centre right. However, I am probably shifting more. I, just me me personally, uh, I'm shifting more to the left in response to uh, populist trends, particularly in America, and what I see as um, the growing problem of of science denialism and conspiracy thinking on the right, particularly in America. And uh, I've, I've also become a little bit more attuned or a little bit more receptive to argue, old left arguments around economic issues. Um, because I'm Australian and because I observed that Australia is less polarised than the United States, I've wondered what are the factors that have protected Australia? Why haven't, why haven't we gone down this path of polarisation and populism that other countries have gone down? That's a question I've, I've wondered. And what I, um, there, there, we have certain buffers or certain protective factors, but I think a big one is that we have a much more solid middle class and we have more economic equality in this country compared to the United States. I think Australia has the richest middle class in the world at the moment and our Gini coefficient is something like 0.2. So our average wealth is only double median wealth so if you have a, a, a if you have a huge if you have a huge gap between median wealth and average wealth that means you've got ex- an extreme amount of rich people and extreme amount of poor people so out of advanced in in terms of advanced economies i think australia's got one of the lowest gini coefficients anyway so that's made me more appreciative of the fact that if you have huge amounts of economic inequality this creates political problems and I think that's a big part of what's happening in the United States. And so uh, does that make me centre-left? I don't know. Maybe on economics it does. Um, but I'm still pretty conservative on uh, on some social issues. Like I believe in the importance of family. 
I'm not huge on uh, um, gender fluidity and I'm certainly a critic of identity politics. So, I mean, it's complicated and I, and I think that the, the shortest and easiest answer is to say that, you're a, that I'm a centrist. And then when it comes to Colette's editorial position, well, we, our editorial position is not political, it's epistemological. So we, we don't reject pieces uh, because they, are, they have a political viewpoint that we disagree with. We will reject them if they do, are not well-reasoned, not well-written, and don't, do not use an objectivist or positivist uh, uh, epistemological framework. Um, and, but the problem with running a publication, as you would know, is that once you start publishing uh, a particular style of piece, then you get more submissions similar to that style. So because we've published a number of pieces, like dozens or hundreds of pieces criticizing cancel culture and wokeness, we get many submissions on that topic, which can, so it can become a bit of a feedback loop. However, we're pretty open-minded when it comes to submissions, and I'd invite anyone who's listening who is left of centre and has considered writing, pitching to Colette to pitch to us, because we're certainly open to um, pieces from that uh, political perspective. Um, thank you, and I have noticed, especially recently, quite a few pieces from that from that perspective. Um, I um, one thing that that a couple of people asked, and I'm also very curious about, is: Do you know what your most controversial, or um, what one or two of your most controversial pieces have been? And is there? Um, I have certainly found um, on Ario that that um and also actually in my own writing that i'm i'm surprised by what people find controversial that i often put something out thinking oh good this is going to really set the cat among the pigeons <laughs> and then there's just everybody's like oh sounds totally sensible to me and then something that seems like complete milk toast centrism that nobody could take issue with has people completely riled up yeah um Oh, what what have been your most um, controversial pieces, and and why do you think? Uh, well, they there's different pieces, and they're controversials to different tribes on online. Um, the piece that has caused us the most trouble is probably a piece that we published by Owen Lenehan about. Uh, a network of Antifa-affiliated journalists on Twitter. That that piece, I mean, I, I'm proud of that piece. I thought it was legitimate investigative journalism. Uh, a researcher looked at journalists for various publications like Huffington Post and how they um, were part of a, a, the the broader Antifa network and uh, how they promoted either the tactics that Antifa used such as doxing and vandalism and violence or uh, produced articles sort of minimising those tactics. So I, I thought that was actually a really important piece and one, uh, and I'm very proud to have published it. However, we it was characterised by the people it was criticising as a hit list an atom waffen hit list and uh, probably the piece that's caused us the most trouble because um, various people online uh, suggest that we put out some kind of hit list on on these journalists was which was not true at all but you know that's the, that's what the that's the nature of uh, American culture wars and if you're going to wade into anything to do with Antifa you can expect to get a very uh, robust uh, response, <laughs> which is what happened. Um, then there have been other articles that are controversial. So in recent years, uh, oh my God, the amount of blowback that we got for publishing an article that was critical of Brett Weinstein was unbelievable. So we published an article, I think in 2020 or 2021, and it criticized 
Brett Weinstein and Heather Haynes' advocacy of ivermectin. And we lost subscribers, uh, we lost revenue, we, I got angry emails in my inbox, um, and it was just, there was just so much um, disbelief that we would criticise one of our own because I was considered to be part of the same heterodox group as Brett Weinstein. And so it really annoyed uh, our fans or a certain portion of our fans and was, um, yeah, the, 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 the blowback to that, I think, I mean, it's not still ongoing, but just the, just the angst it caused in our readers was probably unprecedented. Yeah. And then there have been obviously other, we've, we've published other controversial articles. We've published articles about the heritability of intelligence and the reality of uh, biological race, and that, and those are obviously very controversial. But um, the the articles that have caused the most sort of um, on, you know, have caused the biggest online meltdowns have been <laughs> ones on ivermectin and antifa journalists. Yeah, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, what's happened to the IDW, um, of which you were declared, whether or not you wanted to take on that mantle, but were declared a member by Barry Weiss right at the beginning, in the article that I think gave rise to the whole um, idea of them. And um, I feel that, um, I mean, I personally have a couple of theories as to what's happened, I am very just fascinated and really dismayed that many people who are uh, as recently as in some cases two years ago or even less, um, in some cases it's been three years, and I did look this up before I, before I came here to see how long it's been, I used to think were some of the most reasonable commentators out there and I had like a 90% agreement with the things that they were saying um, have gone nuts. I mean, I think that they have gone nuts. Um, and Majid Nawaz is the most extreme example, but I'm also very dismayed, although I really uh, uh, like them both as people, actually, but um, by Brett and Heather's um, standpoint on COVID vaccines and also other, other things to do with, let's say, medical um, modernity in general. Um, views on sunscreen and deodorants and contraception and, um, and you know, many other things. And um, also, uh, there, have, there have been, a, I'm, I'm trying to, I now, and now that I'm on this, put myself in the spot, I can't think of other salient examples. Yes, I think Douglas Murray has gone way further right than I was hoping he would. I'm seeing people like Peter Bogosian um, supporting Orban in Hungary. I'm seeing many of the same heterodox people um, supporting Putin or apologizing for Putin's actions. So it, to my mind, um, a James Lindsay is, is actually the, the most the second most extreme example after Margit. <laughs> um, and I think that, um, I think two, two things happen. Oh, and um, Dave Rubin. I think it's been probably four or five years since um, mm -hmm. Dave Rubin started to go off the rails. And I feel part of it is audience capture, which we dwelt upon. You do get um, you get rewarded for saying the things that please your audience. And then people send you um, submissions and information that that gels with those things that have already been published and, and an echo chamber kind of forms mm. around you. And if you're not careful, you suddenly, your informational world is all uh, leading you in one direction. Mm -hmm. And things start to seem obvious to you that seem crazy to other people yeah. outside your bubble. There's that. And um, I think that there is also... Uh, there's a bit of a difference in the kind of heterodoxy. Um, so there is what I see in some of the most controversial stuff in Quillette is 
um, including some stuff that I didn't didn't agree with, uh, is a wish to kind of follow the the science, even when the science is unpopular or politically correct, incorrect. And what I see uh, among those who've gone nuts uh, is is kind of a, this knee-jerk contrarianism, which is anything that the authorities are saying is wrong and anything that, is, and that includes the scientific establishment. Mm-hmm. And um, that's when I feel people kind of spiraling down into mm-hmm. this, uh, down this kind of slippery funnel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean the 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 descent of some personalities into uh, some form of madness is is sort of horrifying to watch. Um, and you know, I've thought about these issues just like you have, and I, I don't think there's a simple answer to what has happened. Um, I, I would just have a, a few a couple of comments. Firstly. We're living in a strange time when it comes to ideological fragmentation and I, I think it's probably not that surprising that some people have drifted more to the right and other people such as myself have drifted more to the left. I mean, that's just people evolve over time and and that's to be expected. We can't all stay in the same position and nor should we. Um, what I've observed, though, with uh, con- what's co- who are co- the people who are content creators is that, firstly, being a content creator, whether you're a podcaster or an essay- essayist online or an entrepreneur such as myself, it's a fairly new profession or occupation. I mean, we've only had the internet and social media for, for the last I mean, we've had the internet for much longer, but we've only had uh, the ability to become an influencer and make a living off being an influencer for the last five or seven years or so. So it's fairly new. And I think there's, whereas in other professions, there's a clear understanding of what, what the risks are um, and the conflicts of interest, we haven't yet fully gotten our head around the conflicts of interest and the risks involved in being an online influencer. Now, obviously, one of the biggest risks is audience capture. And I'm glad that that term is becoming very well known because it's, you know, a huge risk to anyone who is an influencer. I think another risk to influencers is um, developing a messiah complex. So you can see it in the people who have really sort of become a bit uh, un psychologically, what's the word, unhinged, (laughs) there is a a risk that people can see that they're getting hundreds or thousands of retweets every day in the tens of thousands, that their thoughts are being viewed by millions of people all over the world and hundreds of thousands of people who apparently agree with them. There's a... it seems to be some people fall into this um, pattern of thinking that they are about to save the world or they're on a crusade to save the world. And I think anytime someone thinks that they're, they're the next Jesus, it's a very um, risky for them psychologically. And the way I think about my job is that my job is to run a company to run a company well, it's to publish thoughtful, intelligent writers who have interesting and novel ideas. Uh, it's to um, create a, an, an enjoyable and stimulating workplace for my colleagues. I'm not in the business of saving the world, and I think that gives me some protection from some of these psychological dangers that other people have succumbed to. And I, and I notice with other people who I know who are very influential with their writing, with their books, with their uh, work as professors and academics. I mean, they're extremely influential and they're doing very important and good work in the world, but they they are under no illusion that they're the next Jesus Christ. (laughs) And I think that's what's, like, I don't want to name names, but some people really think it appears that some people really think that they're carrying the world on their shoulders and if the world is saved, it will be up to them. And I think that's just a dangerous mindset to, to have. 
Well, I did notice that my smartwatch when I was in the pool registered some of my um, front crawlers walking. So clearly <laughs> it knows something that we don't. Yeah. That I would like to you know, <laughs> make funny. any claims for myself. <laughs> but I'm walking on water, apparently. Yeah. Um, I uh, Well, I guess this is a bit of a related question, which is... No, it's not related, actually. I'm, I'm moving on a little bit to a different... A different area. I mean, one thing I think that um, one big difference, uh, one big problem I see in the heterodox landscape is the absolute capture um, of people's thinking by um, American culture and American models. Um, and even in UK thinkers, I feel as though it's become a really dominant. And I believe my my um, personal friend Tomiwa Owiladi, who's wonderful, um, I believe he's writing a book about about this, the American cultural politico cultural hegemony. Mm. And I um, I wonder if you'd like to comment a bit on differences between um, the culture wars in the U.S. and in Australia. And also, you talked a little bit about it before, but. I'd like to hear a bit more about how being Australian has affected your perspective on these things. Yeah, it's a sad reality that all of these conversations um, come back to America, but it's just because America is so big and so powerful. And there is so much more at stake when it comes to the United States. So if, uh, you know, Australia succumbs to some kind of uh, totalitarian takeover. Well, people argue that we did, but just for example, if we we succumb to some kind of takeover, it wouldn't have much of an impact on the rest of the world. However, if the United States does, then it does impact the rest of the world because the United States is the most, the richest and the most powerful country in the world. That being said, um, it's it's very important to keep keep things in perspective when it comes to cultural similarities and cultural differences. And although, uh, you know, those of us, who, those of us in the Anglosphere can, can forget how different we are from America. I mean, Australia is vastly different. The UK is vastly different from America. I mean, Australians have much more in common with Brits culturally than we do with Americans. Um, and that's one reason why Quillette has a Canadian editor and a British editor, and we're not fully based in the United States. That, but the, the difficulty is that when you are publishing intellectual content, you're all, a, a big chunk of your audience, if not half or even a majority, is going to be located in the United States, and that's simply because of population size. So it's impossible to... Um, like it would be absolutely impossible for me to run Quillette with only a focus on Australia. I imagine it would be impossible for you to run ARIO with only a focus on the UK. There's just not a big enough population to sustain interest. Um, yeah, I think about two thirds of our audience are Americans. Yeah. yeah. Um, although interestingly, when we post on trans issues and gender critical feminist issues, then we have three quarters or more uh, British readers. Yeah. So that's an issue that is much more, much more salient in the UK than in the US. Um, uh, but yeah, we have a we have a very large American audience as well. Yeah. Yeah, 50%, 50 of our audience is located in the US. Um, so the other part of your question was, what, how does my Australianness affect my views of the American culture wars? Is that, is that, was that the question? Um, yes. Okay, <laughs> so I, I mentioned before the differences in economic equality, I think, uh, and how they might impact polarization. Oh, another obvious one is uh, racial politics. We don't in Australia. We don't have a history of slavery. We don't. We do have a history of colonization, and there are issues around 
uh, reconciliation with our indigenous population, but our indigenous population is incredibly small. So um, I don't know what the percentage is of the total population, but there's only a few hundred thousand indigenous people in Australia. Whereas in the United States, the African-American population is something like 13%, so it's a much larger uh, group of people. And so it's, there's, going to be much, there's going to be more tension and um, there's, you know, and, and, and we see it playing out all the time that there's just more, uh, more issues when it comes to resolving the differences, resolving the tensions, resolving the historical, the, the past injustices, dealing with the present gaps when it comes to outcomes. All of that just complicates the culture wars in America to a much larger degree. Australia doesn't have those, isu those issues to the same extent. They're much smaller. And our culture wars are really quite boring <laughs> because most Australians are not political and they're not interested in politics. We have a very lifestyle-focused culture. So our culture is very much... Uh, it, it's an anti-intellectual culture and it, most Australians focus on what kind of outdoor leisure activities they're going to do on the weekend as opposed to, uh, you know, what politicians they're supporting, what books they're reading, what kind of issues they want to virtue signal about. So, I mean, on the one hand, having an anti-intellectual culture is bad because we don't have the depth of thinking and artistic output that you would expect but on the other hand, it's a protective factor against some, some of this ideological derangement because most Australians are just relaxing at the beach or drinking a beer or having a barbecue or going fishing or whatever. There's, there's sort a certain uh, buffer against some of this kind of uh, social tension. Mm. So bad weather is a stimulator <laughs> for culture wars. Yeah. Um, I, uh, no wonder. I, I have actually wondered why it is that um, my um, country where I was born, Scotland, is one of the wokest in the world. And I think it is just the weather is terrible. So you sit at home thinking about things. Yeah. Um, and so you get more and more entrenched in your opinions, whatever they might be, because there's no option to go surfing, um, yeah. sadly. This is why I never want to leave Australia. I'm ready for the non-intellectual life. Um, <laughs> but I, I think um, there, I, I think there's also, um, I get the feeling there's in general less hostility towards government, even on the part of people who are more right-leaning here, um, because you are just more prosperous, um, more kind of generally prosperous, and their government things are kind of seem to be working better. Yeah, um, yeah. Apart from the bus system, which really needs an overhaul. Yeah, yeah. It's it's difficult for me to make an informed comment on our infrastructure compared to other rich countries' infrastructure, but um, certainly our infrastructure is not terrible, and the government does spend quite a lot of money on on public public. Uh, you know, public transport, public facilities, uh, public services. Uh, I mean, my background is, I'm not from any kind of wealthy background, but a lot of the advantages I've had in my life come from having access to public services. Mm -hmm. So I went, I've, I've woken up in, I've been, uh, I've had various accidents where I've woken up in hospital and I haven't, I didn't. I haven't known how I got there, and so when I was 23, I was hit by a car. I woke up in hospital. I did not have to pay for my medical treatment. I did not have to pay for the ambulance that took me to the hospital. I was never sent a bill. That's covered by Medicare, which every Australian is entitled to from the moment of their birth, from the day they're born. Um, and. You know, I went to a very high quality university. I didn't have to pay. Uh, I, I owe a, I still have a loan to the government for my university education, but it's an interest-free free loan. I don't have to pay any 
interest on it and it's reasonably small. Um, so there's just a lot of Australians take it for granted that we're going to get decent health care, decent education. To get into a good university in Australia, you don't have to jump through all of these hoops by doing volunteer work or playing the cello or whatever. You just have to get good grades and then you can go to a decent university. There isn't the sort of competition to get into these elite colleges as there is in the United States. So, I mean, we take it for granted that our public infrastructure works, but at the same time, and I, and I think because it does work for most of us, we're not suspicious of government. Um, but that's also, that's, that also goes back to our founding and our history. I mean, the United States has, has an, a suspicion of government because it, that's part of its inception, part of its founding was to expel the English. Uh, and we, we just don't have that as part of our history. Um, we were sort of settled as a large bureaucracy and we remain in many ways a large bureaucracy. Um, and I think another factor is that because the English lost the American colony and because they were uh, overthrown by a revolution, when it came to Australia, they, they had learned their lessons and they were not as tyrannical. And so that's, that's just another hypothesis that I've had about the differences in culture. Thank you. So. Um uh, I have to ask this question, the most popular question on Twitter, um, which is about your uh, views um, on um, vaccination policies, lockdowns, etc. during the pandemic. I do remember, um, I wasn't following very closely. Um, I remember the, uh, quite early on in the pandemic reading some critical articles in Quillette about the um, quite draconian lockdowns in Victoria. Um, and an article in particular, which was about the plight of small businesses during the lockdowns. And, um, um, but really the, the kind of controversy, the controversy over the, um, your support for vaccines. And um, also in particular over the group of um, native Australians who were, um, uh, who the government transported to a, to a camp to um, to isolate um, and control COVID within the community. Those have been the most controversial issues. Now that the pandemic is kind of kind of over, I think. Um, how, do you feel? Um, um, have have your assessments of of. Um, any of the things that happened uh, changed? Have your views changed? How would you summarise now how you feel about um, that whole issue? Yeah. I hope that was a yeah, yeah. kind of precise enough question. Sure. It's hard to frame. Yeah. Look, this, the pandemic is, uh, you know, the pandemic lasted two and a half years, three years. It's been going for a long time. And what has caused the most upset, particularly on Twitter, I certainly haven't changed my opinion on at all. So I, ha I make zero apology for being a, in a supporter of vaccination. <laughs> and uh, I make zero apology for um, pushing back on people like Majid Nawaz and Tim Pool when they said that the Australian government was setting up concentration camps in the Northern Territory and Indigenous people were being forced there against their will. I mean, pushing back on that kind of misinformation, I think, uh, was a duty of mine as an Australian journalist, and I don't regret that at all. Um, I think it's, I think what the, uh, the whole COVID situation taught me was that it's very easy for narratives to spread online about a particular country, whether it's Australia, like a small country, whether it's Australia or perhaps Sweden or another country, it's very easy for narratives about a small country to get picked up in a large country like the United States. Uh, where, and it's very easy for distortions and misinformation to kind of become entrenched as fact. And uh, I still have to explain to Americans the details 
about what the Australian government actually did because there's just very little uh, factual knowledge. And the thing is, Americans, and I don't mean to bash Americans, I love Americans, I was just there recently, I love your country, but to use Australia as a football in, a, in, in an internal culture war was very distressing to a lot of Australians because when I saw Australians on Twitter, for example, trying to, to explain to Americans that no, Indigenous people weren't, weren't being rounded up and forced into camps against their will. They were being abused for um, sharing factual. Even in, uh, even in an Indigenous man who was in one of the quarantine facilities, I saw get abused online for explaining what was happening and, and, and what was, you know, the facts on the ground. Anyway, that being said, I, I, I think I did get some things wrong during the pandemic. They weren't, it wasn't about vaccination or what was happening in the Northern Territory. I think I should have uh, published more. Uh, we, we did publish pieces that were um, critical of the draconian lockdowns in Victoria, but I think we should have commissioned pieces on school closures. And I regret that we didn't. And I think perfectly reasonable and valid for people to um, query the effectiveness of non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as extent extended lockdowns. I mean, I did support lockdowns at the start of the pandemic, but it quickly became obvious to me that they were going on for too long. And I mean, I've deleted my Twitter account, so I can't go back and find tweets to that effect. But we certainly published articles on Quillette that uh, criticised uh, endless lockdowns. And we certainly were not a proponent of endless lockdowns either. Um, so I think that the most... Um, that That's kind of the most controversial thing associated with you from the right. And without... I don't want this interview to turn into... I'm presenting you with a series of attacks that people have made <laughs> upon you. But um, I feel I should mention, so the mo most controversial thing associated with Quillette from a, from a leftist point of view, and the thing that I hear very often is um, that a lot of articles have been published in Quillette about links between race and IQ and um, about human biodiversity. Uh, in fact, someone, a mutual of mine on Twitter says that you coined the term human biodiversity, you personally, um, which seems, I think, is probably incorrect. Um, but I think that that is the thing that is probably on the left causing the most um, anger. And I have even been the subject of a, a lot of kind of the backwash from that myself, a very... Um, an academic who has a very large following uh, wrote this thread in which he said, um, I was a fascist and a racist and I had published lots of articles on race and IQ. And although I think um, it's perfectly valid to publish on that topic, um, I, I've never published anything on that in Ariel. And I said this, and all his examples were articles from Quillette <laughs> because he was confused about who was associated where. Um, do you, um, oh, oh, what, oh, what is your, um, what is your response to people who accuse you of um, having a kind of hierarchical notion of race that is based on um, differing average IQs or other kind of uh, hereditary markers? Oh, well, I would disagree with anyone if they were to were to suggest that I had a, have a hierarchical view of races. I mean, that's just completely wrong, and I reject that um, completely. Uh, I I I do not think that all. Uh, I don't believe the science suggests that all human populations, whether we want it to describe them as racial populations or, or all humans of all ethnic backgrounds. I don't think we're all the same, basically. <laughs> and just as men and women are not the same, and, I, and this, this is not my opinion, this is just scientific fact. So what, 
What we, I guess, what we've been in trouble, what we've gotten in trouble for at Quillant is simply airing a hypothesis. It's called the hereditarian hypothesis. Now, the uh, group differences in intelligence scores on, intel on standardised intelligence tests is a scientific fact. What is controversial, and that isn't controversial, what is controversial is the hypothesis that these gaps may have a genetic, partially genetic component. Now, I am not a scientist, I am not doing research in this area, I am not going to make a claim one way or the other. Could be these gaps could be entirely the result of environmental factors like poor nutrition, uh, lack of vitamin D, whatever. But I think to rule out that genes may play some role is to be anti-scientific, anti-intellectual. So, I mean, we've published articles that have aired this hypothesis, and but this hypothesis is uh, completely taboo in certain academic circles. But, I mean, we, just as we don't apologize for running articles um, on the efficacy of vaccines and the the stupidity of um, advocating for ivermectin without good evidence, I mean, we will also publish articles about that air uh, plausible and valid scientific hypotheses when it comes to individual differences, intelligence, and other um, uh, and other human other factors um, important to human behaviour. Now, I have a little bit of back. I mean, I'm not a scientist and I'm not doing research in this area, but I was trained as a psychologist and I did learn about intelligence. I did learn about individual differences whilst at university, so I have some. Yeah confidence in my ability to read scientific papers around these subjects and so I'm confident that everything we've published at Quillette is scientifically valid. Um, but I certainly reject any notion that because there may be uh, group differences or individual differences and there may be differences in IQ scores, I certainly reject any notion that that, that suggests people are morally unequal or unequal in terms of their human worth, their value, their innate dignity. I think every human being on the planet is precious and we all have, um, we all have equal, we're all deserving of equal human rights and, and respect and dignity. And I abhor um, ideologies which rank uh, people according to racial groups. I think it's abhorrent and vile. And I actually don't think there's anything, I don't think there's any justification of it. I mean, I, I'm not going to, um, you know, if I have a sibling or a ch one of my children is, you know, scores lower on an IQ test than the other, I'm not going to rank them uh, in, in terms of their moral value. It, uh, you know, I love my children equally. And I think we, we have to be able to separate our compassion and our love for each other as human beings from, um, you know, being completely identical on, on, on traits, measurable traits, because it's just impossible. We can't all be the same. We can't, uh, you know, I can't have the same score as someone else on an IQ test, but we have to be able to treat each other equally and with equal dignity and respect. Thanks very much. So um, something that has intrigued me, and I'm not very well qualified to ask this question because I'm, um, I read Sexual Personae um, like 30 years ago or something. And since then I haven't followed her work in detail, but I know you're a great admirer of Camille Paglia. And I would um, uh, tell our listeners um, why, why? and um, how her work has influenced your thinking and um, why you would recommend it. It's been a, it's been a little while since I read Palia, but I do love her work and she has been inf very influential. She was, I discovered her when I was an undergraduate in English. I studied English before I went into psychology and she was the first person I found who actually criticized the post-structuralists. So she was the, one of the, she was the only critic I could find who was willing to 
to push back on Foucault and Derrida and the others who, whose um, philosophical thought came to dominate the humanities um, to its detriment. And so I loved her for that. I loved her for her criticism of post-structuralism. I loved her for her sex-positive feminism. I, I consider myself a feminist, but it's a complicated kind of feminism because I actually think that women have a, have a lot of power uh, I don't think we're necessarily oppressed by the patriarchy. That I also th think that sexism exists. It's just that I think that women have a particular type of power that is not that is female power. And some might some people might describe it as sexual power. That's certainly part of it. But I think uh, female power has been underappreciated by scholars and even feminists. And but Campalia was one of the only thinkers who was able to conceptualize and articulate what female power was and I found it just extraordinarily refreshing, empowering, invigorating to read her work and um, and she's just such an original thinker. I mean she she's she's not the most exquisite writer. Uh, her stuff is a little bit punchy but just the, the the density of original thought in her work is just unparalleled, I think. I think she's just an international treasure. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so I have a kind of a final question for you, but first I wanted to ask, um, is there anything I uh, you sort of hoped I would ask you that I haven't asked or anything that you would like to talk about that you feel is important to say or talk about that I haven't given you a chance to talk about? Um, no, I don't think so. I think we've had quite a wide-ranging discussion and I think anything we haven't chatted about we can discuss over beers. <laughs> oh, I think, so actually I have two final okay. questions because there was one I forgot and I think it's quite important. Um, so we both, we, we, as editors of magazines, um, uh, we're both facing competition from a new thing, which is Substack. And um, full disclosure, I do also write for Substack. Um, and um, I have, I personally have no, definitely noticed that some people who uh, previously submitted pieces to ARIO now just write for their own Substack. And in some cases, that is simply um, a loss to ARIO, and in a sense, it's a loss to the public because it means that to read good writing, you're having to subscribe to a vast number of different um, little publications uh, rather than just being able to get a, a range of writers in a compendium together. And in some cases also, I feel um, um, it's an unwise decision because the people's writing um, the germ of their thought is really good, but it needs an editor to come over well, and they're not edited in their own substack. So I have quite mixed feelings, but I do also um, love the the uh, the freedom that substack has given people to express themselves from a free speech point of view. I am very impressed. And I do enjoy writing my own substack, which is personal essays and short fictions and nature writing and things like that that I wouldn't be able to publish elsewhere. Um, so I'm interested to know your thoughts on Substack and how it has impacted Quillette. Yeah, I, I, I have um, mostly positive views about the Substack phenomenon. I mean, um, it's, it's undeniably a great thing for media diversity and uh, I'm, I, I read Substack a fair bit like my, some of the favorite my favorite Substack newsletters are uh, Freddie De Boers and um, I read Richard Hanania even though I don't necessarily agree with him all the time I don't always agree with Freddie De Boer but I I have some uh, favorite Substacks that I read and and I think I think it's great that original thinkers can publish their writing unfiltered. At the same time, uh, it is, it's become a challenge for us uh, as a business because 
some of our writers are now publishing directly to Substack and we're missing their contributions at Quillette. Um, but the writers that we've retained appreciate what we do for their essays in terms of editorial uh, finesse. And so I employ some very good editors who can take a good essay and turn it into a great essay. And our, my contributors appreciate that. And but I think I think one of the pitfalls of the Substack phenomenon. So I, I think there's upsides and downsides. The upside is that it's increased media diversity, and I think that's that's the main thing. I mean, that's that's a wonderful thing. The downside is that you can't build an institution. You can't build institutions to replace old institutions through individual newsletters. So. I mean, what Quillette is trying to do is become a new trusted institution where people can go to for reliable information and high-quality, uh, thoughtful content. Now, if there's 100 substacks to choose from and you have to go sifting through 100 different essays and, and the content space is absolutely saturated with unedited essays. It just makes it more difficult to build new institutions that are trusted. And I think certainly some institutions will come out of Substack, and they already are, but I think it's a bit of a danger for every single writer to have their own newsletter. I mean, um, and I think... One thing that we're already discovering is that there's too now there's too much content. <laughs> yeah, I th I'm often reminded of Samuel Johnson, who is my personal pinup and inspiration. His uh, he said in 1750 already, we are living in an age of authors, and every man must be content to be his own reader. And I do feel a bit like <laughs> that when I'm writing my Substack. <laughs> um, uh, my final question is about, um, you recently um, left Twitter, deleted your Twitter account, um, and I have got um, many people telling me they miss, they miss you on your voice on Twitter. And I want to know um, what difference that has made to your life and um, how you, uh, also how you manage to compartmentalize if you manage to compartmentalize and stay calm you seem well at least you haven't been sectioned you're not in a mental asylum so you're doing quite well um, uh, how you manage to stay calm in the face of a lot of very very vicious um, criticism um, yeah and uh, what role social media has played in that and how how differently you feel now that you are not on on twitter I love Twitter, by the way, but, <laughs> but it's it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah, I, I loved Twitter for a long time too, and then I stopped loving it. And I think I stopped loving it when uh, I got, I got uh, on the wrong side of the American right. And um, so I've, I've experienced many pylons from the left, and I was able to sort of shrug them off and not internalize it very much at all but when I was getting abused by the right it, it landed differently and I think it it just became a little bit re too relentless for me but ultimately the re the reasons that I left was not because of the trolling and all of the abuse which um you know it certainly was a factor but uh, I've, I knew that my productivity would increase if I deleted Twitter and um, I'm at the stage in my life where my two children are school age, they're in school, I've only, you know, I'm 37, I need to get as many productive hours out of the day as possible, I'm building a company. I'm writing a column once a week for The Australian. I have hobbies, I exist, you know, I run, I do Pilates, I make, you know, I make fermented foods. You know, I have my hobbies, I have, I have my exercise routine. I, need, I want to have an enriching social life. Twitter just doesn't fit in. 
And if, you know, if I look at my day, my daily schedule, and I'm going to open up half an hour to just get abused all day by people who I've never met would have, I wouldn't pay attention to in real life if I came across them in the street. It's like, what's the point? Um, so it just dawned on me that it was a pointless exercise and that my quality of life would increase if I deleted the account altogether and that's exactly what has happened. Now I have more, it's not just more time but more mental energy for my hobbies and things that actually give me joy. Thank you so much and Claire thank you very much for joining me. Yeah no thanks for having me Iona, it's been great to chat. Thank you for listening everyone, have a wonderful week. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O or patreon.com slash 2 for tea. Have a wonderful week.